Support for this podcast comes from ODC Dance. The world-class company returns for Dance Downtown, March 27th through the 31st, with two electrifying programs and five works, springing from cartoon, the news, and human connection. ODC.dance slash downtown. Support for KQED Podcasts comes from Star One Credit Union, now offering real-time money movement with instant pay. Make transfers and payments instantly between financial institutions, online or through Star One's mobile app. Star One Credit Union, in your best interest. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. One thing we've been tracking here is the way that private equity firms have moved in on our healthcare system, snatching up urology practices and pediatricians and also nursing homes. Yasmin Rafi'i was a medical student at Stanford when she saw a study that showed that after a private equity firm bought a nursing home, deaths among residents went up an average of 10%. She found it grotesque and startling enough that she suspended her studies and spent the past year learning exactly how a nursing home changes when private equity buys it. She published her findings in a major investigation in The New Yorker, and she joins us. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. A few years ago, St. Joseph's Home for the Aged was a model, old-school nursing home in Richmond, Virginia. It was run by the Little Sisters of the Poor, an order of nuns who'd been running facilities for decades with a familial touch. But their ranks are shrinking, and they decided they needed to find some other organization to take on the home. They found the Porto Piccolo Group, a private equity firm that had been buying up nursing homes across the eastern seaboard. That's where our guest, Yasmin Rafi'i, enters the story. A year later, she'd published this massive investigation based on interviews with many residents and former employees. But first, Yasmin, welcome. Thank you, Alexis. How did you decide you were going to tell this story, especially given that you were a medical student at the time and not an investigative reporter? Yeah. So I was a medical student at Stanford when I received an email in the Digest for the National Bureau of Economic Research. And in it, there was the there were findings from a research paper by Atul Gupta and several other researchers who were economists. And they had done a national study which covered about 10 years worth of private equity deals and the impacts that they those deals had had on nursing homes. And as I read this piece, it was dozens of paper uh, pe- dozens of pages long, I remember my entire body filling with sadness because the finding that they had was that when private equity firms acquired nursing homes, resident mortality increased by 10%. Hmm. And so at that point, did you go like, well, I want to go find a nursing home? Like, what question were you trying to answer? Or did you think you could contribute? Yeah, well, the question that I had, the question that remained on the back of my mind or at the front of my mind, you know, was um, why do residents death? Why do residents pass away? What is it that contributes to their mortality? And whilst this paper was a kind of nice cross-sectional look at at the impact of private equity on nursing homes, I really wanted to zoom, zoom in on, on one case. Mm. And so I reached out to several friends of mine that were 
business school students at Stanford who had worked in private equity, and I got them to help me look through databases, industry databases that private equity professionals use to track deals. And so I was looking through hundreds of deals of for nursing home acquisitions. And what I wanted to do is find a nursing home right before it was acquired so I could get a baseline of what it had looked like before it changed ownership and then follow it as as changes were made. Mm. And so how did you end up finding this particular place, St. Joseph? You, you zeroed in on it from the spreadsheets and were able to get this pretty incredible access to it, yeah? Yeah, well, St. Joseph's was um, one cell on this spreadsheet. And when I looked up the home, I was wowed by the um, just the the amount of care and the 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 raving reviews that people had left about it. There was in in the comments section of one listing, there was someone by the name of Doug Fiddler who had worked in the home's kitchen during high school, and he wrote that that the sisters at the home had treated their residents with such love and dignity that he had carried the experience with him for all of his life. Hmm. And I was riveted. Hmm. I wanted to find out what that meant and and um, what that looked like up front. And so I called residents and families of residents and staffers at the home, and I got in touch with the sisters who ran the home. And I was doing this about two weeks before the acquisition, before the ownership change would take place. And so, of course, no one was taking my phone calls. And I, if I was able to break through to people, I didn't even have a journalistic track record to point to, to say, here's what I've done in the past. And so, unable to reach anyone, I decided with a a week or so until the ownership changed that I would fly to Virginia and knock on people's doors myself and see if they would speak to me. And did they? And they did. And they did. I I found my first source while I was in Richmond, Virginia, and that source became a handful of sources and that handful of sources became, you know, dozens of sources that I spoke to over the course of this last 18 months as I've worked on um, this investigation. Yeah. So tell us about what you ended up finding as St. Joseph goes from nonprofit to for-profit and from ownership by these nuns to a private equity firm. So what I found was that St. Joseph's home under the nuns was this gorgeous nursing home, um, the kind of place where, you know, if you had any fear about ending up in a nursing home, that would melt away. My own fear melted away as I was walking through this home. Um, it had a wait list that was three years long. And when you walked in, you felt like you had entered this kind of gracefully decorated living room. There were plush armchairs and upright pianos. There was an aviary for chirping brown finches and the residents would gather around it and gossip. You know, there was an aquarium. And and I, when I visited the home, I remember I could scarcely walk a few steps without someone stopping to say hello and to, mm-hmm. to check on me. Um, after the ownership change, the home was renamed to Carrollwood Gardens and some of the, some of the amenities started to disappear. The aquarium on the second floor disappeared. Then so did the aviary. The, the kitchen's meals became slimmer and staler. And within two weeks, management laid out plans to significantly cut back nurse staffing. Some mornings, there would be only two nursing aides working at the 72-bed facility, 
And I remember a nurse that I spoke to over the course of the investigation telling me that um, sometimes it takes two nurses just to give a resident a shower, which would leave the rest of the floor unmanned. And what happened was attentiveness plummeted. Um, There was one resident who went a week without a bath or shower. There was another resident who went several months without having her hair washed. A third resident had her oxygen unplugged. And as her oxygen saturation declined, she pressed her call bell, hoping that a nurse would hear her and come to her aid. But no one heard her for an hour and a half. Mm. You know, as we hear these particular stories, I have to say it, it doesn't seem surprising that death rates would go up if staffing levels go down. But do you think it's that simple, that it's just fewer nurses and less attentiveness equals more deaths? Or do you think there's something else going on? No, I I really do think it's that simple. Um, Much of the research has shown that nursing, that nurse staffing ratios, that nurse staffing availability, nurse staff availability is the greatest predictor of resident care outcomes. And when you visit a nursing home, you can understand why. There was one resident in particular, her name was Ruth Ann Blakely, and she had thrived under the Little Sisters' care. She had macular degeneration, so she couldn't see very well, but the sisters accommodated her eyesight. They, they would print out these massive kind of bingo cards so she could play bingo. And um, she had dementia, so she often forgot to drink water but the staff would fetch her water. And not only would they fetch it for her at regular intervals, they would sit with her and watch her drink it to make sure that she stayed hydrated. But after the home changed ownership, um, Ruth Ann, her daughter noticed that she, that there were oversights, that her mother's blinds would be shut in the middle of the day or her hearing aids wouldn't be in. And she often seemed dehydrated. And during a COVID outbreak that happened at the home, um, Ruth Ann tested positive, and she wasn't hospitalized. And a day later, she was found unresponsive. When she got to the hospital, they tested her blood sodium levels, which are an indication of dehydration. A a normal blood sodium level is between 135 to 145. Ruth Ann's was 163. And the staff at the hospital pumped her with two liters of fluid to, to help with the dehydration. But Two days later, she ended up passing away. Mm. We're talking about what happens when private equity firms take over nursing homes. We're joined by Yasmin Rafi'i, a reporter in residence at the investigative reporting program at UC Berkeley, also a medical student at Stanford University on leave. In fact, went on leave to report this story. She's the author of the recent New Yorker article, When Private Equity takes over a nursing home. We'd love to hear from you. Have you or someone you loved had a bad experience at a nursing home related to cost cutting? Or maybe you've worked in a nursing home. Have you experienced a change or a transition of ownership? And what happened? You can give us a call. The number is 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. It's KQED Forum. And the email is forum at kqed.org. I want to talk a little bit more about the staffing issue. With staffing, it's the big line item 
in any nursing home budget, right? So that means I'm assuming that when a private equity firm comes in or, or just any for-profit owner comes in, they look at that and think like, if we want more money, that number has to go down. Yeah. Um, staffing is often the largest operational expense in any nursing home. And as you said, when private equity firms come in, it's something that they often cut. Um, and obviously that has problems uh, because of the, um, because of often that, often that results in poorer resident outcomes. Um, so. Yeah. Do you think, let me ask you this. Is there something particular about how private equity tries to make money compared with other for-profit businesses? Or do you think it's, they're just a, a more intense version of the other companies? Yeah. Um, so of, of for-profit entities, private equity often purchases um, companies with large loans. And they use these loans to restructure companies and to, to accrue profits from them. Um, but because they're under pressure to repay these loans, they, the the profit incentive is is larger than mm. it would be for another for profit entity. So they use the same strategies as for profit companies, but their profit incentive is more intense. Mm. We're talking about what happens when private equity firms take over nursing homes increasing trend around the country. We're talking with Yasmin Rafi'i, reporter in residence in the investigative reporting program at UC Berkeley. And again, we would love to hear from you if you or someone you loved has had a rough experience at a nursing home related to the kind of cost cutting we've been talking about. You can give us a call. The number is 866-733-6786. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for more Forum right after the break. This is Barbara Leslie, president of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, the smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, tune in to KQED, always bringing us remarkable stories about who we are and where we live. Enjoy today's episode of Forum. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house, even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found ya. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about what happens when private equity takes over a nursing home. Joined by Yasmin Rafi'i. She is the author of a recent New Yorker article, Big Investigation, When Private Equity Takes Over a Nursing Home, centered on one particular home in Virginia. We want to add to the show Charlene Harrington, professor in the School of Nursing at UCSF Medical School, specializes in policy around nursing homes. Welcome. Thank you very much. So would love to ask you about how widespread 
the purchase of nursing homes is by private equity firms and if we see it as an increasing trend or something that's been holding steady? Well, right now about about 70% of nursing homes are owned by for-profit companies. And overall, only about 11% of nursing homes have private equity money involved Mm -hmm. that we know of. But it's very, very hard to track the private equity money and the government has not done a good job of of identifying these owners uh, from private equity companies. So there's probably a lot more money involved than we know about. And what about nursing homes generally? We heard a lot about them during the pandemic because particularly in the early days, they were the site of some of the worst outbreaks and large numbers of deaths. But what's been happening broadly? We know the American population is getting older. Are there more nursing home residents? Uh, Well, the population that's older, uh, of course, is growing. But the nursing home population has been steadily declining for about 20 years. Hmm. And during the pandemic, it declined dramatically across the whole country so that occupancy rates are only about 70%. And they've gone up slightly in the last year. But um, I think that many people uh, are quite afraid of going into nursing homes now because Mm -hmm. of the widespread um, reports about the poor quality of care, the low staffing, and the COVID deaths were extremely high. And of course, many of those could have been prevented if, if the companies had acted properly and had adequate staffing. Is the decreasing number of occupants, residents in nursing homes, what kind of pressure is that putting on the industry? Is that what driving some of these consolidations by large private equity firms or something else? Um, no, I think the consolidations are just to make more money. <laughs> <You know? laughs> uh, but I, the nursing homes are under intense pressure to keep their occupancy up because uh, that's how they make money. And so they tend to try to keep people longer than they should. And uh, maybe some people that don't need to be there could be at home. So I think the the latest effort has been to try to expand the home and community-based services and prevent people from going into nursing homes if possible. Let's get to some calls. Let's bring in first um, Diana in Richmond. Welcome to the show. Hi. Thank you so much. I so appreciate this topic. My mom has been in a nursing home since 2016 in the Bay Area, two different nursing homes. She was transferred. I, I took her out of the last one because of the extreme neglect that was happening during COVID. And the new one looked good from the outside. It was well-maintained, beautifully landscaped, art on the walls. Um, but it had just been sold to a company in Laguna Niguel that um, they owned 23 nursing homes. Within six months, um, the, the walls were painted, the art came down, the director of nursing quit um, abruptly, I want to say last month. Um, there was no director of nutrition, and mom uh, ultimately contracted a UTI, which is very common for elderly, mm-hmm. went into the hospital for 10 days. The UTI was because they were not changing her frequently enough, they were not giving her water, 
Um, she's a quadriplegic. She's 87 years old, and she has dementia. Mm. So the care just really went down. And having um, – <laughs> I go into nursing homes multiple times a week, and I've been doing so for many years. And I think if everyone in the country had to spend even an hour in a nursing home – the policy would be changed across the board, and I don't understand why this is not emphasized in schools of public health, um, why there is not more research done into what is happening in our nursing homes in this country, and why we don't put the same amount of funds into nursing homes that we do into things like early childhood facilities. Is this really how we want to treat our, our most vulnerable? Yeah. And I put that in quotes. You know, do you feel like you have options or are there just not like you you can't keep moving your mother um, and it, how do you feel about that No, I don't. And my mom uh didn't really <laughs> she is on very limited income. So fortunately that does pay for her share of you know she pays a share of costs at the nursing home which leaves her with $35 every month. Mm-hmm. But um I've looked into other facilities and this like I said was supposed to be a good facility. So it really does require the family to do a tremendous amount of legwork. If you don't have family, you're left to your own devices. And I really feel for those people. I saw them in the nursing home. And those were the people that died during COVID, in my opinion. Mm. Um, An option might be a boarding care, but again, that's out of pocket because the state does not pay. And navigating the labyrinth of Medi-Cal, Medicare, private pay insurance, all of that is just tremendously taxing and if you don't have that laid out ahead of time when your time comes to go into nursing homes and there's statistics that show that a huge amount of women will you're basically up a creek mm. and diana thank you for that call this informative and and also heartbreaking i'm so sorry to hear about your mom um let's thank you Sh- charlene can you talk to us a little bit about how people do pay for this this kind of care given that all the challenges um, that Dan was just talking about? Well, <clears throat> a government is paying for 80 to 90% of the care uh, through the Medicare program, which only pays for the short-term care, the, like the first 21 days. And then uh, individuals, if they're low income, can be covered by the Medicaid program, or they can spend down Uh, pay privately for a few weeks or months and until the resources are used and then the Medicaid program will cover the bill. Mm -hmm. Uh, So the the issue is not really one of inadequate funding because the the government is paying a lot. It's, It's the bigger problem is trying to make nursing homes accountable for where the money goes and how they spend it, because there we don't have good limits on profits and administrative costs under the government rules. So there's a lot of policy changes that need to be made. Yeah. You know, uh, yes, I mean, you wrote in your New Yorker uh, feature, Medicare, I think, pays $585 uh, per patient per day, right? And Medicaid pays $245. But there's no, they're kind of flat rates, right? If, if a facility is a model facility, they get that amount of money. And if a facility is barely keeping people alive, they get that amount of money too, right? Exactly. So if you think about the balance sheets at a nursing home, like we said before, staffing levels influence the cost. But occupancy rates for which Medicare and Medicaid pay often determine the profits. 
So as you said, Medicare pays $585 per patient per day and Medicaid pays $245. But if a nursing home can bring their costs below those daily rates, it can actually pocket the difference. Mm -hmm. And so there are perverse incentives to profit from um, producing lower quality care. Let's bring in another caller, uh, Arlinda in Oakland. Welcome to the show. Can you hear me, Arlinda? Maybe not. All right. Uh, let's go to uh, Teresa in San Francisco. Welcome, Teresa. Hi. Um, can you hear me? Yeah, sure can. Go ahead. Yeah, um, I'm uh, an MD geriatrician, uh, and I worked in nursing homes in San Francisco for years. And uh, my mother was in a nonprofit nursing home, one of the big ones in San Francisco. And um, I uh, luckily I was able to bring her home when she became terminal uh, mm-hmm. because the staffing was such a problem. And one of the things is a lot of nonprofits are really run like for-profits in the sense that they're looking at the bottom line and they're looking at attracting people with cash uh, instead of on Medi-Cal to pay the bills. And so um, the um, they can only take a limited amount of the really poor people, and they're competing with staff uh, with the private equity facilities and with everyone else. And so we've got an ongoing staffing crisis that has not resolved in nursing homes, a lot of discontinuity of care, a lot of um, what we call float staff that don't know the patients that are coming in. And um, and so care is continuing to suffer. And uh, this is partly because the... Um, the money for the whole system is being drained off by the profit taking, mm. and um, the nonprofit nursing homes really, even our own Laguna Honda in San Francisco, which is a public facility, um, was neglected and uh, budgets were cut, uh, even as the most medically complex uh, people in the county were put mm-hmm. in there because it was nonprofit and no one else, there was no place mm-hmm. else for them to go. And it's in danger of losing its license now because of this pattern of uh, neglect and um, budget cutting. And, of course, payroll. And if people want to learn more about that, we did a, did a whole show on Laguna Honda and its, its complexities. Right. And it is a, it's a very tough situation. I, wanted, I did want to ask you this, uh, Teresa. You've been in, involved in this system for a long time. What do you see as kind of just give me your number one top solution to make things better? Um, well, I think... Um, uh, pro- transparency, so you don't have the private people doing these shell corporations. Uh, so the left hand is taking from the right, and then they say they, you know, they're strapped for money because a shell corporation is mm. overcharging them, and and so the so the money cannot be extracted. And somehow there has to be. I mean, short of Medicare for all, which probably would be ideal if we could make it work. Um, the money has to go to direct care uh, of the residents Mm -hmm. and not to real estate trusts and not to everyone else Mm -hmm. having their finger in the till. And if the money went to direct care, I think there would be enough. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And somehow that legally has to happen. Thank you so much for for that call, 
uh, you know, Charlene Harrington, professor emerita in the School of Nursing at UCSF Medical School, can we do that legislatively? That seems like a, it, it's difficult to keep the money flowing to the right places, right? Well, in fact, I was going to say there's a bill that's on the governor's desk right now in California, AB 2079, and it would do exactly that. It would limit, it would require that 85% of all the revenues from the, in the facility has to go for the patient care and only 15% for administration and profits. That would make a huge difference if that bill is um, signed by the governor. Mm. So uh, there are four other states that have passed legislation like this in the past two years. So we're hoping that California will will, uh, be the fifth state. Yeah, thank you. Um, you One of our listeners, Lisa, writes, the nuns have a calling to do this kind of work. And when they're no longer directing a facility or providing the care, that is a guarantee that the quality of care will decline. When love is gone, the quality of care is gone. Both my mom and mother-in-law have been in homes run by the wonderful little sisters of the poor. I wish there were more of them to do this vitally important work. And I want, Yasmin, I wanted to ask you this question out of that comment. Why did the little sisters of the poor sell this home? Like, what what's happening inside that organization that they are having to sell facilities that clearly many people think provide amazing care for older people. Yeah. So at the at the Little Sisters' peak in the 1950s, they actually owned about 52 nursing homes. But um, since that time period, the number of Catholic sisters in the U.S. has has dropped from about 180,000 to about 39,000. And so as a result, the sisters have actually withdrawn from many of their nursing homes. Um, And when I asked a sister, Sister Mary John, about why they hadn't looked for a nonprofit um, for this, for St. Joseph's Home for the Aged in Richmond, she said that the pandemic and the lockdowns had made it difficult to find a buyer. I mean, they must be gutted by what's happened to that place, though, right? I think they are. I think they are. And um, Lisa, to get to your question, the question that I kept asking as I went through this investigation is why aren't there incentives to keep good ownership in place? Um, it's not as if there's a shortage of people who are service-minded and and you know young people going into healthcare programs who are service-minded. But I think there is a shortage of places to work that allow you to put your principles into practice. Yeah. You know, I had another question for you, Yasmin, from a, a listener. Sue writes in to ask, could you explain what a private equity company is? How do we know if our retirement investment funds include a private equity fund? Is there some way to defund private equity? Like, how do we, maybe you can just define this as a as a type of tool for investing. Yeah, Um Well, that's a great question from Sue, because it's actually very difficult to identify private equity firms. Um, You know, there are databases that the government makes available uh, that link specific nursing homes to ownership types. But when I went through the database and I searched for nursing homes that were owned by the Porta Piccolo Group, none were made out to be owned by that firm itself. They They were listed under 
a variety of different owners. Mm. And so one has to kind of piece together who actually owns what nursing home. And it's made all the more difficult because nursing homes are often carved up into a variety of limited liability companies. And so there are, you know, a number of different corporate layers between a nursing home and the eventual firm that actually owns it. And do those complex structures exist for a reason? Or is it legal liability protection? Is it just sort of this is how business works now (laughs) that all these companies are shell companies upon shell companies? Well, I think it is I think it is how business works now in the nursing home industry. So at the Richmond home, what happened after the home changed ownership was that what had been one nursing home previously became a series of limited liability companies. There was one company for the home's property. There was another hum- company for the home's operations. There was a management company. And then there was the Porta Piccolo Group, the firm at the very top, and it was insulated from the nursing home by two corporate layers. But that isn't unique. That happens across the country as a means of mitigating liability. If you were to sue the nursing home, um, it would. A, a source told me that it would dissolve into different legal entities. Mm. Um, we are talking about what happens when private equity firms take over nursing homes. We're joined by Yasmin Rafi'i, a reporter in residence at the Investigative Reporting Program at the University of California, Berkeley, also a medical student on leave from Stanford and author of a big recent New Yorker article, When Private Equity Takes Over a Nursing Home. We're also joined by Charlene Harrington, Professor Emerita in the School of Nursing at UCSF Medical School, who specializes in policy around nursing homes, which are some of the questions we've been getting into. We're going to go back to the phones and want to hear more from you about what your experiences with nursing homes owned by different kinds of uh, entities have been. If you've worked in a nursing home or you have a loved one there, you can give us a call, 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. I'm Alexis Madrigal. This is Forum. Stay tuned for more after the break. This is Barbara Leslie, president of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, the smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, tune in to KQED, always bringing us remarkable stories about who we are and where we live. Enjoy today's episode of Forum. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found ya. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking with Yasmin Rafi'i. She is the author of a big New Yorker investigation when private equity takes over a nursing home. Also joined by Charlene Harrington, Professor Emerita in the School of Nursing at UCSF Medical School, specializing in the policy of our nursing homes. Let's go back to the phones. Our Linda in Oakland, you're there. Welcome back. Hi, um, I'm an RN, and um, I have a wide variety of clinical experience 
and I worked in as an interim director of nursing at a nursing home for uh, several weeks. I didn't stay because I was bombarded with paperwork from Medicare, Medicaid, to because they have to get paid, and they had no buddy to take care of the paperwork. Mm-hmm. RN had to certify the medical conditions of the patients. So you have one RN for like 70-some patients and some staff who I was not able to get out and really do training and oversee their care very well. And um, it was just a nightmare. I felt I'd have to live at the nursing home in order to provide safe care. I found that one of the male aides was sexually assaulting the older women. Oh. It was just a nightmare. And I have to tell you that nursing staffing is a problem in almost every clinical area, except probably critical care, where it's mandated by law, the staffing ratios. And maybe this is something that we have to consider. It's not just 85% of the profits going to nursing care, but the mandating the staffing levels, mm-hmm. because they can, they can still cut the money for nursing care if you don't mandate the staffing levels. Mm. That's absolutely essential to be able to say this patient requires, on a scale of 1 to 10, maybe a level 5 care. Or in the nursing homes, it's going to be 9 or 10 for the most part. And you're going to need a higher staffing level and make it mandated by law and then have people coming out from the state to inspect these facilities to make sure that they are meeting their parameters. Yeah. Arlinda, thank you so much for, for that call. And that does, that does sound like a nightmare. Charlene Harrington, is a mandated staffing ratio part of the solution here as well? A- absolutely. I, I think it's the single most important thing that could be done. Uh, we've known for over 20 years what the staffing level minimums should be. And the government has failed to put in these staffing standards. And so I totally agree with the speaker. Uh, President Biden issued an initiative in March of 2022, and he has promised that the government is going to set a mandated staffing level by March of 2023. And the government is in the process of doing a, a new staffing study. So we're hoping that will happen. Uh, but it's the staffing standards have been so totally approved, uh, uh, fought by the nursing home industry, which is why we haven't been able to adopt standards before. Mm. Thank you so much, uh, Charlene Harrington. Of course, you're in UCSF School of Nursing. My apologies, uh, not School of Medicine, School of Nursing. Um, uh, Yasmin, I wanted to toss this comment from Mayor Lee to you. Uh, take a look at the veterinary industry. Private equi- equity is currently going after that industry and stripping it from actually caring for animals, turning highly trained vets into disrespected employees with horrible working conditions. The private equity model destroyed Mervyn's years ago, and that model is going from one industry to another, led by their greed, love for money, and lack of any concern for people, nature, animals, employees, etc. This is unfettered capitalism gone wild, and we taxpayers are paying the bills and facing horrible care for ourselves, our animals, employees, etc. Something needs to be done to stop this march through our economy, destroying entire segments and feeding riches to the top 1%. It is so sad. So I imagine, yes, mean that if I'm a private equity person, I say, look, 
the the ladies, the nuns needed a buyer for this. There was nobody else who wanted to buy it. We are saving people. In fact, you know, in some of the older coverage of of private equities move into nursing homes, they they flat out say this. They told Charles Duhigg in the New York Times this. You know, we're saving this industry. We should be recognized for saving this industry. How how do you think about what private equity is bringing to the table? Like, what's their argument for what they think they're doing? Yeah, well, when I was at the home, the regional director of the management company at the nursing home that I investigated often described the nursing home as a train wreck, and she often positioned herself as its savior. Now, private equity does come with some benefits for these nursing homes. You know, at the nursing home that I investigated, the private equity firm announced a multi-million dollar renovation of the home. So they can bring capital to invest in these nursing homes. They can centralize management. They sometimes support kind of better IT services and better, um, um, yeah, they, they, they can they can bring significant kind of investments into home and homes. And the other thing that they can do is for especially for kind of mom and pop nursing homes, they have a kind of savviness to um, regulation and working mm. to um, prevent kind of deficiencies at these nursing homes that I think I think has an impact. Now the question is, what are the trade-offs? And in this case, what studies have shown are that the trade-offs are poorer resident care and increased mortality. And as many of our callers have said, that so much of this care is now outsourced to families. At the nursing home that I was at, there were there were daughters of residents who would keep watch at the foot of their, their mother's beds to make sure that nothing happened to them. Um, these aren't dollars and cents changes to families or to residents. They're, they're you know, these changes result in stress. They result in time spent looking over um, your parents' shoulder to make sure that nothing happens to them. Yeah. Let's bring in some more callers. Uh, Mary in Orinda, welcome to the show. Hi. Um, can you hear me? Yeah, sure can. Go ahead. Great. Um, I work for insurance companies, and I've had a lot of clients in the senior care, acute care, hospice, uh, all of that type of work. And um, one of the things that I always wondered, um, and I'll just give you an example. I, I feel like I'm, I love the fact that it's a doctor that's actually looking at, at this issue because I feel like a doctor has a lot of control on what happens down the line. And for example, in the acute care, the ANA, the nurses came together and decided that they needed safe patient handling equipment. Mm. And they mandated it. Well, that's not mandated in the home care, senior care, or anything like that. So it's left up to the CNAs to kind of determine if these uh, clients, their residents, need safe patient handling equipment. And I feel like if the doctor would recommend or, you know, as part of the treatment, safe patient handling equipment, as well as whatever other care they need, then it would get done because it would be mandated by their treatment. But right now the treatment is left up to someone, you know, at a, at, you know, at a CNA level and they 
mm-hmm. you know, they're just trying to get in as many people in the door and just doing what they can. Um, they're they're not the, they're not the ones determining care for these individuals. Yeah. And I feel like it would be better left up to the doctors yeah. to think to include caregiving as part of their treatment. Thanks so much for that call, Mary. And I think, you know, Charlene, I wanted to take this one to you. How does this nursing home space fit into what we think of as healthcare? Right? It seems like it's uh, many things aren't working. Many things aren't working in healthcare, but it does seem like distinct as its set of problems are kind of complex in ways that maybe other kinds of medical care are not always. Uh, well, yes, I think um, because uh, nursing homes require medical care, they have to have a medical director and a director of nursing. And, and so there are re- requirements. But the, the problem is when you have these for-profit companies, the nursing directors and the medical directors do, do not have as much control and authority as they would in a hospital. Mm. Uh, most hospitals are nonprofit and they're very professionalized. And so they operate on, under professional rules, but because these private companies, uh, they, the owners dictate the equipment, they, the staffing and make decisions that they shouldn't be making. Uh, so I think we have a real problem with it. It's, mm-hmm. It stems from the ownership. Mm-hmm. Let's bring in really interesting call here. Nasser in Foster City. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Matt. Uh, I was listening. Uh, sorry, stuck in a long commute, but um, I am listening that uh, the conversation is more of a macro operations of the care homes and nursing homes as such. And I wanted to share that uh, we actually had one of these uh, operated for about 10 years. You, like you owned um, and operated it. it Correct. Yeah. And I uh, wanted to share some perspective from the inside of the operations is that um, there, there's, a few, uh, there's a few things that has been happening that makes this type of operations extremely difficult. And that's really one of the reasons we got out uh, is that. If you really run this type of operations for money, there's really no money in it. I think as Jasmine was talking about is that if you have the care and passion, that's the things that you want to be in, that's how you become successful only by enjoying what you're doing rather than by thinking that you're going to make money in this business, number one. Number two, one of the things that has changed is that most of the patients that we were dealing with uh, they were funded by either savings that they had or some pension plan or plan to sell their house and what have you. So they're always under a limited amount of money to disperse and pay for this. But the the issue is and has been is that they don't know how long they would survive this ride. It would be four years, five years, five months. So thus they had to watch their budget very carefully. But now what has been happening, at least in the last, I want to say, seven, eight years, is that, A, most of the expenses has gone up so much higher that they just can't afford that continuation. So what has been happening is, at least from our perspective, most uh, parents, most kids, 
they keep their parents in the house as long as they can, and then they only just bring them to a care home only in the last few months of their living just because of mm. the cost perspective. Mm. And meanwhile, there are so many labor laws that has been enforced that it just makes you just run away from that business just because they, it is, really has become a competitive for the staff that you hire. Lack of training, lack of loyalties, they come in and then by persuading another 50 cents extra from another place, they leave you in the middle of the day, bring in another person, training them, and etc. They don't last long enough to get familiar with the patients and know what they're all about. So it really becomes the, the lack of caring comes in from those perspectives. Yeah. The patients aren't there long enough. They are not able to communicate because they're in the last stage of their lives. And at the same time, the, st the staff, they just don't last long enough to become... Uh, adapt and uh, learn the environment and of course the business the cost of the employee and food and everything else goes up so much higher that when you sit down and look at it at the end of the day it is not a profitable business uh, and uh, this this trend by so many different again labor laws into the place let me ask you one more question before we let you go who did you end up selling to like what type of entity Oh, there was uh, uh, some sort of Chinese-owned uh, corporations that they were funding money to U.S. We we find that out later. So it, they approached us as a individual uh, owner and buyer, but we found out that their their funding comes in from some China's uh, government operations that they have money all over the place, and that was one of their way to disperse their money in the U.S. Interesting. Nasser, uh, Sudi, thanks so much uh, for for that call and for for bringing that perspective of someone who's owned and operated one of these places. You know, Charlene Harrington, I wanted to ask you that, that on the question of profitability. One of the things that I have read about this is that profits seem very disparate. That, that like it, there are some places that seem to make no money and some that seem to make quite a lot. Yeah, yes, uh, you're right. We we just finished a study of profitability in California nursing homes. And the average profit was 7%, but uh, one nursing home reported a 74% profit and uh, one nursing home reported a 48% loss. Uh, but we, we see that these companies that have all these um, multiple companies associated with a nursing home, they tend to be taking out the profits into these related companies and basically hiding their profits. Mm -hmm. So and, just to, uh, to explain how that might work, right? They basically, they yeah. charge themselves. They have like a charge back where they say, okay, well, this service that would cost $10, we're actually going to charge you 12 and we're going to pocket those $2 over here. And that like that's why it's difficult to, to find out the overall profitability of one of these operators. Exactly. Uh, they have a separate lease that uh, for a company that, uh, that they own the property in a separate company. So they charge exorbitant rent for the nursing home. And that way they they profit uh, by that excess mm -hmm. charges. So 
they have so many ways of hiding the profits and then it looks like they have a loss when they don't really have a loss yeah and other nursing homes are taking excessive profits and they've been allowed to do that without any problems from the mm. government mm. yes i mean you know when you started this investigation 18 months ago you had some big questions to answer do you feel like in the course of this reporting for your New Yorker article, you got to the bottom of what you wanted to know. I did, yeah. I wanted to understand why it was that residents passed away when private equity firms acquired nursing homes. And the answer was that staffing cuts contributed enormously to resident care outcomes. Um, and it suggests that this business model isn't viable unless we make some changes. Yeah. Are you going to go back to medical school now or are you going to stay on as an investigative reporter? That's a great question, Alexis. Um, why don't you have me onto the show next year and I can tell you the answer? <laughs> I can tell you from a financial perspective, there's one of those paths is more lucrative. Just so you know, maybe no one's told you. Um, thank you so much uh, for joining us and sharing your research. Again, Yasmin Rafi'i, Reporter in residence at the Investigative Reporting Program at the University of California, Berkeley. Also a medical student still on leave at Stanford University. And her big investigation uh, into nursing homes, published in The New Yorker, When Private Equity Takes Over a Nursing Home. Thanks for joining us, Yasmin. Thank you for having me. We've also been joined by Charlene Harrington, who, as you've heard, knows absolutely everything about the policy around nursing homes. She is Professor Emerita at the UCSF School of Nursing. Thank you so much, Charlene. Thank you. If you're interested in these issues, go on our you know, forum webpage and look up private equity and also look up Laguna Honda, a publicly funded uh, care home here in San Francisco. We've covered these things before and we're going to cover them again. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for another hour of Forum Ahead with Mina Kim. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Heising Simons Foundation, and the Bernard Osher Foundation, supporting higher education and the arts. This is Barbara Leslie, president of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, the smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, tune in to KQED, always bringing us remarkable stories about who we are and where we live. Enjoy today's episode of Forum. I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house, even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite... Ha! Found ya. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. A young correctional officer. He said it was the most dangerous prison in California. Forced to make a choice. Fulfill his oath or back his fellow officers. Recognize the badge of my office. 
I'm Suki Lewis. From KQED Podcasts comes On Our Watch Season 2, New Folsom. A story about who gets hurt when the system that promises to keep us safe is bent on protecting itself. Find it wherever you listen to podcasts.